to look at Psalm 116. It's one of those uh, interesting psalms. It's very personal to uh, the person who wrote the psalm. It doesn't uh, tell us who actually wrote it, but uh, it is really a, a reminder to each and every one of us who trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ and in God our Father what it is to have one who is so dependable one that we can rest upon and trust in in every given situation, no matter how difficult, no matter how trying it is. This man was going through all kinds of difficulties and therefore he comes to us and he wants to tell us a story about his experience at that particular time. And as Christians, of course, we should all be able to have a testimony like this, isn't it? That uh, we should all be able to tell others about what God has done for our souls the ways in which God has intervened in different situations and difficulties and problems that have arisen in our lives and how God has come and intervened and overruled in certain aspects of our lives. And it's a wonderful thing to be able to read the testimony of this man. His declaration, of course, is that he loves the Lord because of what? Because he has heard my voice and my supplications, because he has inclined his ear to me, because... I will call upon him as long as I live. Now, in one sense, we could look at that and think, well, you know, it's a bit like uh, the devil coming to God when he's speaking in the book of Job, isn't it? And saying to God about Job that he, he only follows God and favors God because what God has given to him. And it's all because of the benefits that he has derived from God. And therefore, if God took all these benefits away from him, then Job would curse God. And of course, the whole book is about the proof and the reality of the power of grace in the life and experience of this man Job, in that he overcomes all of this, and the proof of it is that at the end of the day, isn't it, he still didn't curse God. Grace prevailed in that situation. And it's true here. It's not because of the benefits that we derive from God that we love the Lord. Because we love the Lord, we derive benefits from the Lord. It's because of our relationship with Him. I remember um, before I became a Christian, I used to know a fella that I was involved in, in in many ways in my profession at that time. And then I remember talking to him one day and I said to him, do you, do you have any siblings? You know, do you have any brothers, sisters, anything? And he said, uh, well, I do have a brother, he said. I said, oh, I said, do you keep in contact with your brother? And he said, no. He said, why would I keep in contact with him? He can't do anything for me. And so his relationship was based upon the benefits that he could derive from his brother. And because his brother couldn't give him any benefits, he cut the relationship. Well, it's not like that with us, is it? It's not because of the benefits. I was somewhat amazed at that time because I had two brothers myself. And so it was strange then to find that, you know, somebody could have an attitude like that to his brother. But it's because of our relationship with God, isn't it, that when God helps us in a situation, in a given situation in which we find ourselves, it's then that we can respond as well to that, isn't it? You know, it's almost like adding to what God has done for us. We realize that God has intervened in this situation and you're thankful and you're grateful to God because he's intervened and therefore you love the Lord because he has intervened. But you loved the Lord before that. 
This was the case with this man. You can see, can't you, in uh, verse 7, where it says like this, Return to your rest, O my soul, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. You see, the situation was that he already had a relationship to him before he went through this experience. So it wasn't something new. It wasn't that he was ignorant of who God was. But it was something that this particular event stimulated and stirred him that he looked at the situation. He says, I cannot help but praise God because of what God has done for me. And we can be like that, can't we, as we're moving through life and in our varied situations, we can rejoice that God intervenes. His condition was pretty dire when you look at uh, what he says about his state and his condition. His state and his condition was that he was very near to death. He was in that state and that condition where he was fearful of death. He says in verse 8, for you have delivered my soul from death. You know, this is his situation, this was the condition under which he found himself. In verses 3, for example, 2 and 3, isn't it? He says about God has inclined himself to him because I will call upon him as long as I live. The pains of death surrounded me and the pangs of shale laid hold of me. I found trouble and sorrow. This was his state. This was his condition. You know, there was some physical illness that he was undergoing. There was something trial that he was going through. It could have been more than that. It could have been all the situations that surround that illness and sickness and things, and he was fearful of death and what was surrounding him at the time. And here he is saying, look, I have this trouble, I have this sorrow in my soul. Now, being a Christian, of course, entails us having problems. Apart from the fact that we have normal, ordinary problems in the sense that we can become ill, we can suffer financially, we can suffer emotionally, we can suffer psychologically, we can go through all kinds of difficult times in our experience, we can experience anxiety and stress and all kinds of things. But on top of that, of course, when you become a Christian, of course, you can suffer for your faith. You know, you could imagine, if you wanted to advertise for a job, would you say, like Jesus said, you know, come and follow me, he says, and what are you supposed to do? You're to take up your cross and follow me. Now, when you're speaking to the Jews at that particular time, they were so mindful of what the cross signified. What did it signify? It signified distress, suffering, and death. This is what it meant. So taking up your cross was indicative of the fact that Jesus was saying to these people, look, if you want to be a disciple of mine, if you want to follow me, you're going to experience all kinds of difficulties, you're going to experience all kinds of problems because of your faith. You're going to go through all kinds of things simply because you believe and trust in me. You're going to suffer the ridicule and the mockery of the world. You can even go to the extent that people will put you to death because you believe and you trust in me. Now, in one sense, you could say that isn't a great advert, is it, for people to follow him. And yet, for all of that, we become followers of Jesus because of what he has done for us. You know? The situation is that people today, perhaps, 
when you look at a verse like that and they think, well, you know, how difficult is it going to be to win disciples? You know, to get people to come to trust in Jesus. How difficult it is. Well, you know, what we should do is we should maybe uh, water it down a bit. Anna's just made some elderberry cordial. Elderflower, sorry. Not the berries are not there yet. But of course, to drink it, you can't just drink it neat. You have to water it down. And in some senses, people are like this, aren't they? Now, current situation in the church, because we are a minority and it's difficult to win people over, oh, let's readjust the parameters of what the gospel is talking about. We don't want to tell people, oh, come to Jesus and take up your cross and follow him. And of course, you're going to suffer all of these things because you're following Jesus. Oh, no, let's, let's give them something like, oh, if you follow Jesus, you're going to have health and wealth, and you're never going to ever suffer. Wow, who wouldn't follow somebody for that? Permanent health, growing bank balance, never a worry, never a concern. What an incentive. Who wouldn't follow? Let's have a look. I could go around, could I, and say, put your hand up, who wouldn't follow, isn't it? If you had the opportunities like that. But the true nature of the gospel is this, that when you take Jesus as your Savior, you also take his cross to carry that cross through this world, to experience abuse from people. It might, in our situation, isn't it, just be, you know, verbal abuse, psychological abuse. It's not generally physical abuse, is it? Very rare, maybe, for Christians to be attacked in this country, but it happens in other countries. Where Christians are dying for their faith in Jesus. And taking up your cross is highly significant. In the early church, of course, when people took up their cross, of course, they were fighting against almost like the Roman Empire. Who tried to suppress the gospel, tried to suppress the Christian church for 300 years. But here is this man, isn't it? going through these things, going through suffering, going through things. But what does he do? You know, when we are going through trials and tribulations, perhaps because of our faith in Jesus, or perhaps just on a normal human level, what is our recourse? What do we do? Well, we do exactly what this man did, don't we? He says in verse 4, Then I called upon the name of the Lord. O Lord, I implore you, deliver my soul. Here's a man who takes recourse to God himself. Here's a man who comes to God in the realization, and the full realization, isn't it, of God as being the only true and living God. A God who can hear prayer, a God who can answer prayer, a God who can intervene in the life affairs of this man. He's not coming, as it were, to some idol. It was quite common in those days, isn't it, for polytheistic situations to arise where there were gods all over the place. There were gods of the mountain, there were gods of the valley, there were gods of the river, there were gods of the sea. There were gods for everything. But he was coming to the only true and living God. He was the one who knew this God existed and heard prayer. You remember, don't you, 
Elijah on Mount Carmel. The challenge that he gave to these people, let's, let's see who is the only true God. Let's go up on the mountain and, you know, make our altars, offer our sacrifices, and then we'll pray to our God, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. Why? Because God who answers by fire must be a real, living God. And you remember the prophets of Baal, 400 of them, they were all crying out to their God. And what does Elijah do? He mocks them. He ridicules them. He says, oh, has your God gone on holiday? Or is he sleeping? Shout louder. Wake him up. You know? Let's, let's arouse your God, you know? And they're cutting themselves, and they've got their knives out, and there's blood pouring all over the place. And he's saying, well, you know, cry louder, man. Shout, scream, the top of your voice. Make sure that he can hear. And what happens? Nothing happens. Until Elijah says, pour water over my offering. And then he prays, isn't he? Prays to God. You know, he wants proof. He wants evidence of the existence of God. Well, here is the proof of it. Fire comes down from heaven, consumes the sacrifice, lick, dries up and licks up all the water that's surrounding the sacrifice. Here is the only true and living God. You know, today, if we were doing something like that, doesn't it? It wouldn't be politically correct, would it? To ridicule, to mock these poor people as they were trying to summon their God to come and help them in their situation. What can you do? We would be criticized. We would be told, how can you do such a thing? Sometimes we lose that sense of mockery, don't we? That's some of the things that people say. Well, here was this man praying to God. Then I called upon the name of the Lord, he says. Oh, Lord, here's his prayer. I implore you, deliver my soul. Here I am in this desperate state, in this desperate condition. Oh, come and deliver me. There's nowhere else to go. Who else can help? What do people do when they're in a situation where there is no help left for men in or in men? You think of the Titanic, don't you? And uh, you think they kept the orchestra playing to the very bitter end. Why? Well, to keep their spirits up. What a fact lot of good that was. Keeping their spirits up. What you need is help and aid from God. For God to come and God to intervene. For God to overcome the situation in which we find ourselves. We need help and aid from God. And in that state where we throw ourselves upon God. We're praying and pleading with God to remember. Men can't help in given circumstances. But God can help us in every circumstance. In every situation, no matter how dire, how difficult it is. God can help. And so it's a little wonder, isn't it? Then in verse 5 he says, Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Yes, our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple I was brought low. And he saved me. Here was his declaration, isn't it? It's almost as if he wants to say, look at what God is like. Here is this expression 
of praise for what God is. What kind of God do we worship? You know, if you were to ask people, well, how do you conceive God, you know? What do you think about God? It was quite common at one time, you know, to split the Old Testament up and the New Testament. And they used to say, oh, you know, you come into the New Testament and it's all forgiving and it's all love and things like this. But in the Old Testament, oh, it was rough down there, you know. God was a God of judgment, harsh, difficult, you know, punishing people all the time. You know, this was the kind of God that he was. And this is this concept that some people have about God. They can have this harsh, hard view about what God is like, that he is a God of judgment. Martin Luther, the great reformer, this was his view of God. When he thought about righteousness before God, and he thought, I've got to, you know, God is righteous, and I have to be righteous. How, how can I deal with this situation? When I'm dealing with this God, and there was this awesome fear of God. But in reality, isn't it, God is unchanging. And he was the same in the Old Testament as what he is in the New Testament. And when we read about God so loving the world that he gave his only begotten son. It was the same God there as was there in the Old Testament. The experience of this man is that he learned more about God in this dire situation. He comes to the conclusion that God is gracious. The Lord is gracious and merciful. This is what God is like. What is our conception of God? What is our purview of him? What is it that we see who God is like? All of what we are is because this God is gracious. All of what we have is because this God is merciful. The hymn that we're going to sing afterwards, it's a great hymn, isn't it? Remember these words? On the Mount of Crucifixion, fountains open deep and wide, through the floodgates of God's mercy flowed a vast and gracious tide. Grace and love like mighty rivers poured incessant from above, and heaven's peace and perfect justice kissed the guilty world in love. This is the God we are dealing with. Not some despot. Not somebody who wants to crush everyone but a God who is gracious. And so when we come before God, isn't it, we have to have this mind set upon God in this picture that we have, isn't it, and realizing that we are coming before a God who is infinitely gracious and merciful, a God who is kind in all the ways in which he deals with us, a God who forgives sin, a God who is merciful to wash us and to cleanse us from all sin. This God, is the God that we have dealings with. And this God is the God who has condescended to meet with us, to condescended to hear the prayer of this poor man in all his difficulties, in all his trials, in all of what he was going through. This God heard the prayer and delivered the man. And what a wonderful thing it is for salvation and deliverance to come to us. And this is what happened in the experience of this particular man. He says, the Lord preserves the simple. I was brought low, and he saved me. In other words, I was crushed. I was brought to that state where I had no help in anybody. 
then he says, and he speaks to himself now, doesn't he, in verse 7. He says, return to your rest, O my soul, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. You see, the point with this man was that he had got into this situation because he had drifted away from God. He had taken his eye off God. A bit like those in the boat with Jesus, isn't it? They looked at the waves, and the wind, and the water coming over the sides of the boat, and Jesus sleeping in the back. In the back of the boat, he was there, sleeping like a baby. And they thinking, oof, we're just about to die. Don't you care, Lord? See, this man had drifted away. Drifted from the Lord. From the Lord. He had taken his eye off the goal. He had taken his eye off the one in which he had a relationship with. The God who could deal with the situation in which he found himself. And the moment you take your eye off God, then you're in trials and difficulties that are overwhelming. But it's only when you look at these trials in the light of who God is and you realize that we are dealing with a gracious and a merciful God that you can come to terms with the situation in which you find yourselves. You can remind yourselves of great verses like that in Romans 8, isn't it? All things work together for good to them that love God. If you love God, I love the Lord, he says, and if you love God, all things, no matter what's happening in your life, no matter what's happening in your situation, all things are working to your benefit and to your good. Now, you might find that hard sometimes to accept that. But you know, God sometimes changes his method in dealing with us in his providential dealings. No wonder it's called the mystery of providence, isn't it, how God deals with us. Sometimes God, you see, uses the carrot and the rod, doesn't he? Sometimes he has to deal with us in different situations, in different ways. And sometimes the rod can be very painful, but as long as it brings us back to God. And it's not because we're going through sufferings and difficulties, or you can question whether God loves you or not. That's never the case. Because we read, don't we, both in the book of Proverbs, chapter 3, which is quoted again in the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, and verse 5 and 6 there, it says, whom the Lord loves, he chastens. In other words, whom God loves, he just doesn't leave them alone. He chastens them. He deals with them. In their situation, what does God want us to do? He wants to drive this man back to himself. And so the man comes to this conclusion, return, all my soul, to my rest. He had no peace in his soul. But what does Jesus say? He says, come unto me, all ye that are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Learn of me. Take my yoke upon you. you know? And you'll find rest for your souls. This man had no rest. But where should we be? We should be resting in Jesus. We should be resting in God. That there is our every confidence. And so he's saying, return my soul. looking at himself and he's speaking to himself. It's almost like he's rebuking himself and telling himself, look, you've moved away from your moorings. You've gone away from God. But come back there. And there is only safety in that place. And here this man is saying, look, why? Because he has 
captain, but he was made. Oh, how gracious God has been, he says. How he has dealt with me. Not according to my sin, but according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. He deals with us in the New Testament situation, doesn't he? You know, when you think of how great God has done for our souls, what has he done for us? Well, you read in Ephesians chapter 2, isn't it? You get the first three verses. It describes the world and the situation that we belong to that world. And then he says, but God was rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us. Even when we were dead in sin, as quickness together with Christ, and by grace are you saved. The intervention of God's love and mercy and grace in our life, in our experience. Return, O oh my soul, to that rest, to that rest that I have in God. Because he has dealt bountifully with me. See, the thing is here, he goes on to explain in verses 8 and following, isn't it? For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, and my feet from falling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believe, therefore I spoke. I am greatly afflicted. I said in my haste, all men are liars. What has happened to the man? This is my condition, he says, you know. I looked around and about, he said, I was so peeved at the world, I was so peeved at the situation in which I found myself, that I made this declaration, all men are liars. You know? Doesn't anxiety do this? Offers, as it were, sudden madness. The perception goes adrift, and, you know, the mind, as it were, you know, you're criticizing everybody and everything. All men are liars. Let me come quickly to the last part. That's what I want to get to as well. He says in verse 12 through to the end, doesn't it? What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits toward me? What am I going to give to God? The cattle on a thousand hills it is. There's no money that can redeem our souls. What if a man should gain the whole world and lose his own soul? If he offered all the world to God, it's God's anyway. The whole point is this, isn't it? What can I render to God? What can you and I give to God? The only thing we can give to God is our praise, the devotions of our hearts, our acknowledgement. For what does he go on to say? He goes on to say, doesn't he? I will take up the cup of salvation, call upon the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord, now in the presence of all his people, precious in the sight of the Lord, the death of his saints. O Lord, truly, I am your servant, I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving. We call upon the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord now in the presence of all his people in the courts of the Lord's house in the midst of you, O Jerusalem. The only thing that we can give unto God is praise. Praise him for what he has done. Praise him for the grace that he has bestowed upon us. To glorify and to magnify him, doesn't God say, that he who offers praise glorifies me. What was this man trying to do? He was trying to bring people back to this position, isn't it? Whereby they were going to praise God for what he has done. Look at what God has done for me. 
Look at what God has done for you. Salvation has come to us, he says. But the interesting thing is, you see, it's in the midst of his people, isn't it? In the midst of you, O Jerusalem. You see, it's a corporate thing, isn't it? It's not an isolated thing. It's not merely going up on the mountain and praising God. You can do that if you want to. And it's a good thing. But oh, how much more to be with the people of God. To express our praise. To glorify Him. What better time than to look at the Lord's table this morning, isn't it? To remind ourselves what great things God has done for us. Here is God, gracious, merciful. Here is God who is righteous. Here is a demonstration of God's love. Here is a reminder to us that God demonstrates his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What a demonstration to us. Shouldn't we as a people of God praise and magnify and glorify him for all of what he has done for us? Shouldn't we be in that frame of heart and mind that this man was in when he has come to this realization, he's returned to God and his soul is praising and magnifying God and he wants the people of God to know what God has done for him. And all the people of God have got a testimony of what God has done for their souls and if you haven't got a testimony, you're not one of God's. For God saves. God delivers. The redemption is given to us. But you see here, isn't it? Verse 15 is an interesting verse. You see, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Death is an expensive commodity with God. What happens to God's people is of concern to him. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. I can assure you here that when death comes, there will be one who will always be vigilant around that deathbed. There is one that will watch over and care for that person. There is one that David says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. God is there. Can I tell you this, my friend, and you look at Scripture, and you look at Lazarus being carried into heaven by the angels. God brings his horse to them to transport that person. So that when they're passing through that gate into heaven and into glory, the angels will be transporting them. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. The Lord never leaves us. He's with us before we die and he's with us after we die. How do we survive in this world in which we live? Let me just remind you of, uh, there's a quotation in actual fact. It's a quotation that is taken from one of these verses here, and I'm trying to find the verse quickly, where it speaks about how God has dealt with us. But let me just remind you, because I'm going to read the verse anyway. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and I need to read it because it's an extensive thing. 
But in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and in the closing verses of that chapter, Paul, in the previous verses, had been reminding these people that we don't lose heart, he says. Why don't we lose heart? He says, well, he said, let, me, let me just tell you what my experience is. We have this treasure, he says, in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in our body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifest in our body. So here is Paul telling them of his experience. You're saying, how desperate was his plight? Look at all these things that are around and about us, almost as it were, trying to crush us, but we're not crushed. Why aren't we not crushed? When in verses 16 to the end, he says, therefore, he says, we do not lose heart. Whoa, Paul. All of this, all these things you're going through, and you don't lose heart. You know, it's enough to make anybody want to be in a state of desperation and despair. But he says, therefore we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. So all of our suffering that we are going through is going to give us a greater impression of the glory that's going to be ours when we get there. Well, we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. You see, this is the way in which you overcome it, by the eye of faith, by seeing the invisible. Not being attached to the material, but being attached to the ethereal, to the heavenly, to that which is spiritual. And when you're attached to that, then we don't lose heart. In all the difficulties, in all the trials we're going through, we don't lose heart. Why? Because I'm not looking at these things. I'm not overwhelmed by these things. I'm seeing that which is invisible, that which is spiritual. And because of that, I can face up to all the trials, the conflicts, and even death itself. Because God is with me. And Christ is with me. And he never deserts his people.